Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. We are fast marching toward the end of our long study of the book of Romans. And I'm always amazed at how the Holy Spirit sets the agenda for our church through what can only be called next verse theology. In other words, when you're an expository church, when you go through books of the Bible, then you're never at the whim of whatever you know, your pastor or whoever's preaching wants to preach on or whatever um, uh, curiosities are aroused or whatever spiritual spanking that the pastor feels like the church needs. You're, you're really following the mind of the Holy Spirit as he inspired and unfolded these books of the Bible. And I'm convinced that his providence perfectly sets the timing and the agenda for the church as we study these books. That certainly is the case this morning as we're going to be studying how a faithful church cares for missionaries. Now, I know what you may be thinking at the beginning. Uh, this is for someone else at some other time for the missions committee and the elders. But this has little to do with me. And can I just ask you to buckle your seatbelt and hold on tight for the next few minutes? Last paragraph in Romans 15, Paul says in verse 30, Now, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in Rome in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This last week, Kim and I had a date night, and we went to a local restaurant. Had a great time with each other, but what was intriguing was how that night began. Our waitress came, and it was obvious that she had a Slavic accent, and so I asked her, where are you from? And she told me the Ukraine, and I greeted her in Russian. That was the only thing I know in Russian, the privyet. And she said, oh, we're, how did you know Russian? I've been to Ukraine, Belarus, and, uh, Russia many times. And she says, why? And I said, well, it's, I have friends over there. I was trying to ease into the conversation. In fact, I said, I'm going to be in, in Kiev in the Ukraine next week. Excuse me, next month. Scared myself there. <laughs> Have you ever said something and then your brain begins to like nest on what you said and you panic? That was a panic moment. Next month, I told her. Next month, I'll be in Ukraine myself. And she said, why are you going? I said, I'm going over to teach a class for a group of pastors on preaching and how to explain what God has said in the Bible to their congregations. Furthermore, 
I have several friends who are missionaries who live in the Ukraine. And I'm so looking forward to being with them and, and being in Ukraine again. And, and she stopped and completely flabbergasted and puzzled. And she said, wait a minute, you have friends who moved from the United States to the Ukraine? I said, yes, I, I actually do a whole team of guys. And she said, why? I, everything about me my whole life wanted to leave Ukraine to come to America where it was more convenient, more money, easier to live, less depression. Why would they leave a country like this to go to the Ukraine? And I mean, it was like the slow pitch in the batter's cage. And, and I said, you know what? They get to tell people every day how they can be saved from all their sins and go to heaven because they have the perfect righteousness of the one perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, who lived a life they could never live and paid a death that they would eventually have to if they didn't believe the reality of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Conversation took an off-ramp at that point. She wasn't interested in hearing anymore. I tried to talk about it more as she would refill iced tea and never got altitude. Why would a person leave a, an easy-to-live-in country to go to an oppressive, poor, difficult, hateful environment and give their lives there for the glory of God? Why, why? What would motivate a person to do that? Kim and I were humbled as we had dinner just talking about our friends and our missionary friends. The sacrifices that they make, the sacrifices that they are experiencing right then, and it, it caused us to even pray at dinner for, for some of them by name. Missionaries and missions can be extremely misunderstood. So misunderstood. In fact, if you want to hear an amazing range of answers to the same question, ask 10 people you know, 10 random people, what is a missionary? And listen for the answer. I'm convinced that you'd have probably as many answers if you ask people inside the church, what is a missionary and what do they do? Let me just remind you, no, they are not superhumans. No, they're not on extended vacations. No, they're not all good at fixing cars and building airplanes. No, they're not always bubbling over with joy and encouragement by the difficulty that they find themselves in. Yes, they get discouraged. Yes, they struggle spiritually. And yes, they are always concerned about financial and prayer support. Have you ever thought about your role in the life of missions and, and missionaries? Now, maybe you have. Maybe you've given to a missions cause. Maybe you've prayed for a missionary. Maybe you've been on a trip. But do you understand the ongoing burden and privilege that the Lord lays in our laps to carry for those who are carrying the gospel in places where we are not and they are. 
I think there may even be more confusion about the role of a church and what we do in the role of missions and the care of missionaries than there is about what a missionary is. I mean, what do you think your role is? I I wish we had time to have a a little bit of an interview. What, What do you think your personal role is in missions? To write a check? To have a missions committee? To put a prayer card on your refrigerator? What is your personal role in missions and in the lives of missionaries? Do you even know the names of the missionaries that our church supports? Where they are, where they live, what the names of their children are? Do you know their needs? Do you read their prayer letters? Do you get their prayer emails and that's the one that you just push to the trash? In the last few weeks, I've quoted... Dr. Piper, John Piper's familiar words about missions, faithfulness, when he said, listen, there's only three choices. You either go, or you send, or you disobey. It's a great admonition. I just think it's a little incomplete. I agree that you go, or send, or disobey, but there are at least two more responsibilities that Paul addresses here that the church has toward missions and toward missionaries personally. These are privileges, these are responsibilities, these are stewardships and burdens that you and I are to bear if we're to take any clue from how Paul instructed the Romans. Paul outlines them in the passage before us. Let me just give you a real short part of this and then I'll I'll give you a fuller explanation. Here it is. If you want a simple uh, way to talk about this at lunch today, our responsibility is prayer and care. Prayer and care. Let's dissect that a little bit more by looking at two ways a faithful church cares for missionaries. Two ways a faithful church cares for missionaries. The first is that prayer I was talking about. Number one, joining together in earnest prayer. Joining together in earnest prayer. Let's look into verse 30 and you'll see that this starts out with praying out of duty and love. Praying out of duty and love. Verse 30. Now, I urge you, brothers, sisters, my spiritual brethren, my siblings, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Paul begins with a loaded phrase of accountability. And the word he uses here that the New American Standard translates as urge is a fascinating word. You, you know this word, whether you realize it or not. You know, there are some Greek words that are, that are pushed over from, from uh, the Greek language that we use in our own language. And this is one of those words. The word urge is the word Parakaleo. Now you say, where have I heard that? The Holy Spirit is often called the, anyone know? Paraclete, right? John uh, records Jesus speaking of the Holy Spirit as the paraclete in John 14, 16, and in John 16, 7. He's the noun version of this verb. I urge you, the Holy Spirit is the urger. He's the come alongsider, literally. The one who comes alongside I'm asking you to come alongside. 
He's not saying, pray for me while I go on vacation. He's saying, as we'll find out in a minute, pray for me, with me. Pray for the mission with me. And notice he says, brothers. (laughs) He doesn't say, I urge you, therefore, elders at Rome. I urge you, therefore, missions committee at Rome. I urge you, therefore, people who have a specific burden for missions. Not at all. He addresses the church. I urge you, brethren, I come alongside you. I join you, brethren. And he loads it now with this accountability. By our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now that's a phrase with which we're very familiar. It's a title that Jesus has called. And we kind of read over that and, and we lose the, the compound power of this phrase. He could have said, I urge you by our Lord. He could have said, I urge you by Jesus. And he could have said, I urge you by Christ, but he didn't. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the Lord Jesus Christ. All three titles. Why? He's the Lord because it identifies our relationship to him as master. He's Jesus in that identifies him as the God-man from Nazareth. He gives his proper name. And Christ reminds us that he is Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. So when he loads all three of these titles up, it's a pile of accountability to know the one with whom we are dealing. These descriptors work together to speak of our duty to Jesus Christ who is our Lord He's calling us to obey the master, in other words. And I love this next phrase. And by the love of the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of debate about what this means, the love of the Spirit. Does this mean the love that the Spirit has for us or the love that we have because of the Spirit? And you know what? There's really no way in the grammar to tell. So I think it's probably both. The Spirit gives us love, transmits the love of Christ, the knowledge of Christ from the Father According to John 14 and John 16, that's his work in our lives. But it also generates, he generates, his ministry generates love for each other. I I, I tend to think he's talking about the love that we're supposed to have for each other and the love that the Romans were supposed to have for, for Paul here because of what's coming next. It's the love that the Spirit of God generates in our hearts and I think here for for a missionary. So we pray, pray out of duty because of our lordship relationship with Christ and out of love because of our love for those who've gone ahead of us and sometimes even instead of us. But next, look at this in verse 30. We also experience praying with intensity and specificity. Wow, is this instructive. We're to pray with intensity and with specificity. Now look at the last phrase in verse 30. I urge you, therefore, brethren, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. This is packed. Again, when you look back to the original language to understand what he's saying, you know this word as well. This is another transliteration of a word that's a Greek that comes over into English. The phrase strive together with me is one Greek word in the original and it's a compound word that includes two words, one of which you're very familiar. 
Soon agonizomai. Soon is the Greek preposition with. Agonizomai. What does that sound like? Agonizomai. What does it sound like? Agonize. It's the word agonize. Literally, to use yourself in an athletic event, this is the original language, to to press toward a finish line, to strain in a contest to win, to try to win a prize. Figuratively, it's used of heroic efforts and striving earnestly, making every effort, trying very hard in Colossians 1.29. And metaphysically, it means doing your absolute very best. I think that's what's going on here. So doing your best, agonizing, and then soon with with me, which tells us that Paul wasn't telling us to do something that he wasn't already doing himself or wasn't willing to do himself. Struggle with me, agonize with me. It tells us that Paul was agonizing in prayer and the Romans were urged to do the same to God for him. I think these are legitimate expectations that the Spirit of God would have for us as a church today. You know, you gotta ask yourself, just just backing up one one step. This is the PS, this is the postscript in Romans. And, And why is it there? Is it just so that we would know what he said at the end? Or is there instructive value to what he's saying? I I think there's deep instructive value by the example that he leads and the request that he lays on these Romans. I mean, think about this. How many missionaries have we had through here in the last few years? I think we were, I saw Marty Zide's picture rotating, ministering to Jews over in the St. Louis area. John Glass has been here. Massimo Moloch has been here. Johnny Gravino has been here. Joel James has been here. And every one of them, without exception, looked us in the eye and just sort of begged us to pray for them. How are we doing? Let me ask you some questions. Do you have prayer cards in your home as reminders of these men and women who are giving their lives on the field? They're stacked up on the welcome desk. I hope we empty the welcome desk today of these. Do you receive the missionary emails? If you don't, stop by and give your email to the welcome desk or go online, find our missionaries, look on the prayer cards. They're all there. You can get their their prayer letters, and they are prayer letters. I was looking at an opportunity that Massimo Molica had in Italy just this last week on a Bible study he was teaching and and an opportunity for evangelism he had with a guy at a market. Are we praying Do you, maybe I shouldn't say do you, will you pray for these precious families who have gone instead of us? Many of these men and women are alone and lonely. We were in Italy a few years years ago and I remember my wife meeting with one of the missionary wives and they had, had a day just walking around in Rome and at the end of the day, it was interesting to hear this missionary wife say to my bride to say, you know what, 
Um, thanks for letting me, helping me think through even the discipline of our children. I've had no one who even understood what that meant that I could talk to here. And the, folks, we have no excuse. We have FaceTime. We have Skype. It's free. I remember when long distance calls were extremely expensive and difficult. I can call for free and see a missionary on my phone. It's unprecedented how we could bear the burdens of and, and share the joys of our mission friends. Here's the question, though. Here's the question. Have you ever agonized in prayer for them? Man, this is convicting. I don't know if you've ever had conviction from looking at a dictionary but I was looking at the, at the layers of meeting for this word agonizomai. I began to apply what this means to what Paul is asking and to ask myself, am I doing that? Have I done that? Can I give you an embarrassing confession? I struggle to even say this. So many missionaries have asked me to pray and I have Once. That's not what this word is. Agonize with me. Beg God. Strive with God. And look, look how he goes on and personalizes it. To God for me. I mean, that's pretty specific, isn't it? Now, what should we pray for? It's a good question. What should we pray for? Paul doesn't leave us to guesswork. So next we find this is praying for physical safety and spiritual fruit. Praying for physical safety and spiritual fruit. Verse 31. That I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Do you see it there? He prays for physical safety and he prays for spiritual fruit. His first request is for safety. Listen, Paul's missionary life was dangerous. Read 2 Corinthians 11 about that. Read the book of Acts. He was beaten up, left for dead, ostracized, made fun of everywhere he went. The Holy Spirit promised, you're gonna have chains and pain. Thank you, God. You know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Paul might ask some questions about that phrase. but he was not a killjoy. He was bold and daring, but he wanted God's protection. He asked the Romans to join him in pleading to God for his safety. We'll come back to that in a moment. The second, he asked for prayer that he would bear spiritual fruit in Jerusalem. He wanted his offering, both of money that he was taking to them. Remember, we said he was taking a, a gift from the, from the Greeks, from the Macedonians down to the um, the poor believers in Jerusalem. He wanted it to be acceptable, but he wanted his life and ministry to be acceptable as well. And remember our map. <laughs> He's gonna go 3,000 miles, and are you ready for this? Almost five years out of the way to seek this faithfulness in the midst of danger and personal fruit he wanted to see in Jerusalem. Now, 
we're going to take an aside. You're welcome to join me, or you're welcome to just listen. But Paul prayed something specific here, and my question is, what's the answer to this prayer? It's not often that you see a prayer and an an answer. The, The book of Acts gives us the answer to this prayer. And you're welcome. This is going to be fast, but I think it's worth our while. I'm going to take you on a tour. We're going to start in Acts chapter 20, and we're going to go a very fast tour to see what happened after Paul prayed this in his narrative. I think you'll find this fascinating. In Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, we see Paul, he's in Greece. Probably, as we read, he's either in Corinth or in uh, uh, the port city of uh, of, um, which he spoke about with believers being there, probably a church plant from Corinth, Centuria, where he writes the letter to the Romans. Then beginning in the middle of verse 3, he takes representatives from the churches with him. He went with a team by boat. And the end of chapter 20, it's just... He has this emotional encounter with the Ephesian elders. Now, he stops at Miletus. Miletus was 30 miles uh, a journey from there to Ephesus. He stops at Miletus. He didn't go see them because he wanted to stay close to the ship. They didn't have uh, itineraries that were uh, very faithfully followed then. The ship could just leave. He just hopped on as a, uh, says he was on a merchant ship, which means it wasn't a, you know, a cruise ship. He, he jumped on a grain ship or something and So he stayed there, sent for the Ephesian elders. They come 30 miles down to meet with him in Miletus. He has that tearful encounter with them. He told the Ephesian elders in verse 22 of chapter 20, Now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem. Now we see that he left Corinth where he wrote Romans. He's on his way. He stopped at Miletus, the port city, not knowing what will happen to me there. Remember he prayed to the, uh, he asked the Romans to pray for safety from these people who were after him, these Jews in Judea. I don't know what's going to happen. Verse 23 is one of the most incredible verses in the Bible. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly tells me, solemnly testifies to me in every city saying, bonds, chains, and afflictions await me. Folks, that's heavy. We typically try to arrange our tomorrows to be more convenient than today. Imagine the Holy Spirit every day of your life saying, it's going to get worse tomorrow. It's going to get harder. It's going to get more dangerous. What is his response? Verse 24, I remember memorizing this. As a high school student, it's almost hard to read. But, after this promise of the Holy Spirit, but, Paul says, listen to this missionary mindset. But I do not consider my life of any account as is dear to myself. Who can say that? Why? So that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I know what the Holy Spirit promises me, but my life is not dear to me. 
I'm going to be faithful. And when I die and my eyes close the last time, they will open the first time to see the resurrected Lord Jesus. By the way, just a little footnote, he was traveling, we find out uh, in Acts 20, with a group of men, any of whom could have taken the monetary gift to Jerusalem where Paul was a wanted man, but he went himself in the face of danger. His personal pastoral care for these Jewish believers in Jerusalem compelled him to deliver ministry and money personally. We go to Acts 21, and he left the men in Miletus, sailed to Tyre, where they met up with the, Christ, uh, the Christians there for about a week. Then uh, the Holy Spirit urged them to go on, but they urged him not to go to Jerusalem. In fact, it got more intense than that. 21.10 says this. As they were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus, you'll remember her from earlier in Acts, prophesying for a famine, came down from Judea and coming to us, took, took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, it's Paul's belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So the Holy Spirit has now told him this, and a prophet has told him this. When we heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. You know who the we is there? That's Luke, who is with him. Luke began to say, hey, dude, it always starts with dude. Dude, I, I think... The Rome trip sounds a lot better than Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded. Luke says, we fell silent remarking, the will of the Lord be done. <laughs> Finally, in Acts 21, 17, the group arrives in Jerusalem. And guess what? They met with James, the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Remarkably, James and the, the Jewish believers there at Jerusalem received his report, received the money. It was exactly the spiritual fruit he longed for. It happened. The prayer was answered. In the following week, some antagonistic Jews from Asia incited crowds in Jerusalem against Paul. Roman soldiers intervened, rescued Paul from being murdered, but they still arrested him. And Paul has the opportunity to speak to the Jewish crowd. And guess what he does all five times in, in uh, the book of Acts when he has an opportunity to address the crowds with the greatest theology ever conceived. He, he tells his testimony. Again, he tells his testimony. At the rejection of the Jewish crowd then, the Roman guards, guards took him again into custody. He must have known the names of these Roman guards. In 23, one, 
Paul looking intently at the council. He shows up before the council of Jerusalem. Sanhedrin, the uppity-ups of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and said, brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him in the mouth, punch him. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> you sit and try me according to the law in violation of the law in order to strike me? But the bystander said, you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one of the group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And he said this, as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and assembly was divided. Now, this was a really interesting strategy on, on Paul's part. Um, l- let me give you a, a strange illustration. When I was uh, uh, getting my, uh, uh, my oral uh, defense for my uh, doctor of ministry back in 2002, I was getting peppered with these questions by these guys way smarter than me, and um, I was pretty intimidated, and... Um, at one point, one of them asked me a question. I answered, and the professor said, well, I'm not sure, and he began asking me some other questions, and the other instructor, the other uh, professor said, well, hang on, and began to debate with that other professor, and I just leaned back and said, go at it, boys, as long as you want. That's what Paul does here. He just throws a bone, and all the dogs begin to chew on it. I was here for the resurrection of the dead. And you know what the, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, right? So a dissension occurs. Assembly was divided. Verse 8, the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge all of them. And there occurred a great uproar. And some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heartily, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. So they're like, we don't like the Sadducees so much, we'll side with our enemy Paul. As the great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces. So he ordered the troops to go down, take him away by force to bring him to the barracks. But on the night, immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, this doesn't say, it's a, by the way, it's a dream. It says the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, You must witness at Rome also. Paul was told by Jesus, you're going to get to Rome. You're going to get there. But it was going to be a longer trip than he expected. Not the way in which he had hoped. He was relocated then up to Caesarea Mamertine, the Caesarea by the sea. He was there for two years in prison. 
tried by the Roman governor Felix in which he gave his testimony. We read this in just a few seconds, but Paul remained there in prison for two years. It's really crazy how fast it goes in the book of Acts. Because of his Roman citizenship, he appeals to Festus, the new governor, and he says, I want to trial before Caesar, each time giving his testimony as what he believed. Festus ordered Paul to be taken to Rome, and before leaving, Paul gave his testimony to King Agrippa, <laughs> Herod Agrippa II. And now things are beginning to take shape to fulfill what God told Ananias in Acts chapter 9. Remember Acts 9, 15, the Lord said to him, Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. That was going to all happen in Rome. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Acts 27, he's under arrest, sets sail for Rome. He's shipwrecked, stays for the winter there on the Isle of Malta. Finally, he arrives in Rome about 59, AD 59, placed under house arrest where he could have visitors come and visit him. He was subsidized by the Roman government to hold counsel with the church at Rome. Is that amazing? It's incredible. Finally met these members. Acts 28, there we found some brethren invited to stay with them for several days. Thus we came to Rome, he says. We find out from Luke in verse 14 of Acts 28 that he gets there. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the marketplace of Appius and three ends, both about 30 miles away on different, different axes from Rome. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who was guarding him, a perfect environment to minister to the saints in Rome. And I go through that narrative to tell you, God answered these prayers. I think it's fair to say that he recounted how these prayers were answered. Do we pray for our missionaries specifically, earnestly, for their physical safety, for their spiritual fruit? That's the first way a faithful church cares for missionaries. The second is so practical. This is quicker. The second, serving together in demonstrable care. This is so sweet. Serving together in demonstrable care Three dimensions of this. First of all, recognizing God's sovereignty. Verse 32, Paul says, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God. Remember Agabus? Remember the elders saying, let, let the will of God be? He understood that he was under God's sovereign plan for his life. He was willing to do anything because he trusted God's oversight of him. So encouraging and convicting. So we... See, he eventually gets to Rome, but he gets to Rome in chains and under house arrest. And he says, I'm going to come to you in joy. Do you think Paul came in joy in house arrest? He's arrested. Do you think he came in joy? Very interestingly, from that imprisonment, he wrote the book of Philippians in which he talks about joy 16 times. It's incredible. That was his first Roman imprisonment. The second time he would be in the Mamertine prison, which was what those of us who were on a Reformation tour visited just outside of the Roman Forum. 
a dreadful place before his execution. He recognized God's sovereignty. I want to come to you by the will of God and enjoy. Now, just don't miss the fact. Have you seen Paul's life? And he says, I'm going to come to you in joy. His joy was not, this is a whole other sermon. His joy was not dictated by what we would conceive of bad circumstances, as bad circumstances. His joy was in his life being counted valuable to God in his ministry. Recognizing God's sovereignty, we also serve together in care by providing personal refreshment. Now, roll up your sleeves for a second, okay? He says, and I may find the New American Standard as refreshing rest. It's literally, literally this rest is cessation from stress. Rest, refreshment in your company. He was looking forward to a rest with the Romans. It was not just a vacation, not a time to catch up on sleep. It was a rest from refreshment from being with these believers, I think this has some specific implications for us in our church with our own missionaries. I remember last year when John Glass was here and he, he preached on how a church could encourage missionaries and he talked about rest. Remember that, that point? Some of you are nodding. He said, when you have a chance to, to minister to a missionary, give them rest, give them refreshment. Care for their souls. Remember that they're not superhuman and part of the dynamic duo with God, they need encouragement and refreshment. Their batteries recharge spiritually and physically as well. Providing them restful lodging. Let me just give you a practical uh, uh, admonition. Is your home such that you're ready for a missionary? And you say, well, I, I don't know that it is. Well, let me tell you how it might be. was in Samar, Russia a few years ago with Kim in a two-bedroom apartment with some Russian missionary friends. Came time to go to bed and they took us into their room and they said, here's your towels and here's a plug. Here's the bed. And it didn't take any time to realize this was their room and and their bed so I said Brad where are you going to sleep we'll make a place in the floor in the living room can any of us say that we if you have a place to pillow your head you have a place to care for a missionary for someone who's a gospel-bearing witness, for a visiting pastor. I would hope our church would be the kind of church that if we found out someone was coming, we would fight over who could have them with us to provide such refreshment. Do we enjoy discussions with them about their work, find out about what they're doing, develop interest in it that is long-lasting, looking specifically into their needs restocking their souls and wallets, praying for them, praying with them, laboring and agonizing, maybe in our own living rooms with men and women who are giving their lives for the gospel somewhere else. 
Listen, we have a missionary care committee that you can consult with if you want more details. You can also take this care on as an individual or as a family. Think of how much this will teach your kids about the great work of gospel outreach when you're talking about this. Man, I just want us to be a church that just missionaries say, when I get to America, I want to go to Mission Road Bible Church because I find refreshment. I want to be with those people. And thirdly, this is, this is incredible in the context. Speaking about care, it's, it involves enjoying divine blessing. This is Paul asking for refreshing who says, now, now the God of peace be with you all, so be it. Amen. Few Christians have lived a life that lacked circumstantial peace like Paul. He was constantly under physical threat, constantly under emotional, emotional turmoil. And yet here, he's concerned about their well-being spiritually and their peace. Knowing the peace of God generates peace. Here's a man we would expect to be seeking out counsel. Ah. <sighs> I got to tell you about what happened at Troas. Oh, Miletus. You got a, a, a derby at Lystra. They were, they, I was taken, taken out and left in a ditch to, as dead. Well, somebody ministered to me. God, and Paul says, no, I want the God of peace to minister to you. It's a passage where it's easy to dismiss for someone else or some other time because we have our own problems We have our own needs. We have our own crippling circumstances. And yet Paul, his example here is so convicting. He chose to focus on God granting peace to the Romans than talking about his own struggles. What a lesson that is for us. I heard a long time ago, when you think you need the most help, give the most and you'll find peace. I think that's a biblical principle. Paul longed to get the gospel to Spain. And he longed to see the Romans on the way. I just, just thinking, what, where do I long for the gospel to go? I mean, can, can we even talk about the absence of this thought with each other? I mean, is there a place on a map where you say, I don't think the gospel is there. I just want someone to go. Maybe I, maybe I could go. Short-term, long-term. This church and the relationship with this missionary teaches. Now, I want to confess. I'm reading this. God sets the agenda for the church when you go through expositions of books. This was the next one. And I was looking at this passage all week thinking, actually for two weeks because I was ready for it last week, um, and thinking, you know, Here we are, there's so many needs, there's so many issues, so many circumstances in our church, and God has us thinking about missionaries. I think that's really good. Because maybe we should think a little bit less about ourselves and contextualize our problems with some of these folks who've given their whole lives for gospel truth. This isn't a guilt trip, this is a motivation to be this kind of church and these kind of Christians because Jesus is the most valuable part of our lives, right? 
We say it every week. If he is the most valuable part, can we say with Paul, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself, but it's completely disposable to the will of God. Oh, that's when he went. Are we willing to say that for our own lives and our own resources to support people who do that? Don't let this condemn you. Let it convict and motivate you. Don't let this put you back. Let it move us forward and become a missions-minded church.